says, thanks be unto God. This is Paul speaking. He says, thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. And that's been the meditation of my mind the last several weeks and continues to be. And it's amazing how that meditating upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ um, just blesses every part of life. And so I hope that this is not just a one-off for you as you sit down for an hour and listen to a message, but I hope that Jesus Christ is living inside of us. And that as Paul prayed in Ephesians, that by faith He might dwell in our hearts. Yes, He is living, He is in us, but by faith we reach Him and we feed on Him and we feast on Him and we draw strength and we comfort our hearts and we are instructed and we are encouraged and it is impossible to have any of those things outside of Jesus Christ. And so, please, please do not let this just be a, oh, that's interesting, but please hear this, that you may feed and feast daily upon the living God, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Brother Zach prayed in our prayer meeting this morning, and his prayer started out this way. As he is, he was filled with emotion, sincere emotion, and he says, Lord, my ardent request today is that we would fall on our faces before Jesus and see His glorious character. Well, that's our aim today, is to fall on our faces before Jesus and see His glorious character. In every one of these messages, I have emphasized the word unspeakable. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. It's a coined word, a made-up word. But I want to emphasize right now that it's not unspeakable in that it is something that you just don't understand. and can't grasp. Like, this is beyond you. Don't touch this. Don't reach for this. It's, it's unspeakable. Just leave this alone. No, it's not like that at all. We are invited to come and to gaze upon and then to reach forth and to mine the wonders of Jesus, it is the response to seeing this that is unspeakable. As we embrace, as we see, as we gain um, access and understanding of who He is and what a gift that He is, then our jaws are left agape and we are unable to form words that fully grasp and fully convey the value of Jesus Christ. So I don't know where your heart is this morning. I don't know if you're sort of still stirring your mind to think on spiritual things, or if you're just cold as ice, or if you are prompt and ready to hear. But wherever you are, just pause for a moment right now and ask the Lord to help you Fall on your face before Jesus and behold His glorious character. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Well, last week we looked at the unspeakable gift, really answering this question, well, what is or who is this unspeakable gift? And we listened to the testimony of John, John the Apostle, who um, we looked in John 1, and John says this. John says the gift that we know is Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually the one who was at the very beginning. He was at the very beginning as the Word of God, the ultimate disclosure, ultimate self-disclosure of God. Jesus is the Word of God. He was at the beginning. In fact, He was so at the beginning, He made all things that are. Nothing that is made was made without Him. Everything that was made was made by Him and, we'll look at this a minute, and for Him. So it was a, it, the, the creation is both from Him and it is a gift to Him. That's the wonder of the mystery of the Trinity, right? It's, a, it's made by Him and it's made for Him. Well, this Word of God, who was at the beginning, who made all things, who is the light, that any man who has light, he is the light thereof, this one was enfleshed. He was made flesh. Wonder, mystery. Look at that a little more this morning. The God-man. God made flesh. And John says, as we saw last Sunday, he... He tabernacled among us. 
He, he pitched his tent with us. So he's not aloof. He's not at a long distance. But this is God coming right down to where we are to remain with us. To walk with us, as it were, in our wilderness journey. To walk with us through our Egypt and to bring us out of Egypt, across the sea, out of the ultimate bondage, greater bondage than Pharaoh or some tough job situation, but the bondage of our sinfulness, the bondage of our offense towards God, the bondage of the great gap between man and God. Jesus comes as God in flesh to tabernacle with us, to bring us out of our wilderness and into the glory of Canaan. Praise the Lord. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, so He's close to the Father, and yet He is distinct from the Father. He is God made flesh to dwell with us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Remember, He was filled with grace and truth. Our two great needs, righteousness, truth, to be, to, to be pulled away from the lies that we had followed. Satan the great liar and we the great follower of Satan's lies. To be pulled away from the lies. To be shown the truth. As it is in God, Jesus comes as embodied truth. The way, the truth, and the life. And He comes filled with grace. Grace for every single one of our needs. Our needs are fully met fully satisfied in Jesus Christ of his fullness we don't just gaze at of his fullness we receive it comes to us and grace for grace well that's wonderful isn't it that's unspeakable in fact sister lee came to me sunday evening and she said i have a confession to make she says i sinned this morning okay tell me more she said, when the, when, the, when the service was over, she said, we were all just sitting on our hands. She said, we were hearing of the wonders of Jesus. And there was something in me that, that wanted to erupt. Not in anger, but wanted to erupt in praise. And I just, I just sat there. Something should be said. Something should be done. Something should be responded to. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Friends, all of this, all of this is meant... To provoke in us a response, whether audible and a shout or in a, a praise the Lord or in thank God for an unspeakable gift, or in full surrender of loyalty and obedience to Jesus, this is the response that is demanded from the glories of Jesus. Well, let's look at some more today. How about that? Let's look at some more today at the unspeakable gift. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. So Hebrews 1 and going to try to answer this question and to the best that we can today. So if last week was, well, who is this gift? And the answer is, he's God. He's the God-man. Um, try to answer this gift, this question, well, what is the scope of this gift? Like, how, how, what, how great is it to be the God-man? What does it mean to be the God-man? What does it mean to be Jesus as a gift to his people? Now, this is not just a, a lecture that the writer of Hebrews is giving. This is a real answer to real questions. If you know anything of the book of Hebrews, you know that it is written to Christians, Christians who are living under difficult circumstances, Christians who are wavering in their faith and wondering if following Jesus was truly worthwhile or not. This is in the first century, so it's a few years removed from the life of Jesus and then the death of Jesus and His resurrection. And life had gone back to just life. And life as a Christian was difficult. Difficult for a number of reasons. And you may be thinking, well, they were just a few years removed that they still had eyewitness accounts of the uh, of the glory of Jesus and the work of Jesus. What weak people! Let me ask you, who live in relative luxury, 
compared to all the rest of the world? Does your eye of faith ever grow dim? Are you ever prompted to walk according to your own wisdom and to leave the words of Jesus as optional? Does your Bible reading reflect this full fealty and devotion to Jesus? Do your interactions with your spouse reflect a full submission to the Lordship of Christ? Your neighbors, your workplace. So maybe you today, just as desperately as the Hebrews, need to hear exactly who Jesus is and what a blessing, what a gift that He is to us today. Hebrews chapter 1. Let me just admit something at the very beginning of this. I struggle preaching Hebrews 1. I just do. It is probably my favorite chapter in all the Bible. Maybe Colossians 1 might be, might be a rival, but Hebrews 1 is perhaps my favorite chapter in all the Bible. It is Christological. It is glorious. But for me, it's like a fireworks show. I also struggle at fireworks shows. Um, if I go to a July 4th fireworks show, you see this incredible brilliance. And then you're, you, you are prompted to turn and look at this incredible brilliance. And you never fully get to just enjoy and drink in before you're moving to another thing. And that's how Hebrews 1 is. Hebrews 1 is a popcorn popper of, of, of statements about Jesus that should be just bathed in and marinated for hours and hours and hours. So let's just kind of hit it as we, as, we, as we go through it. But I would urge you, I would urge you, to not just do a drive-by look at this, but to dive into passages like Hebrews 1 and understand exactly what the author is saying. Now, what, Hebrews, what the author is doing in Hebrews, is the author of Hebrews is obviously seeking to exhort those Christians to not give in to their urge to turn from Jesus. And so he will do that by just for... Is it 16 chapters? Maybe I have that wrong. Maybe it's 14 chapters. For a number of chapters, just expounding on the glory of Jesus. And he does this by a common method. When you want to show how good something is, he does this by comparison and contrast. He's going to compare Jesus to a bunch of other things. Now, when you're doing that with things that you're seeking to promote, usually the way that we compare and contrast is to emphasize the negatives of the thing that you're trying to warn against and the positives of the thing that you're trying to promote. Hebrews is not like that. Hebrews says, look, there are some really wonderful things. And I'm going to say no negative things about them at all. I don't need to do that. Let me tell you about something that is so, or someone who is so far surpassing in glory and worth to all the good things, the wonderful things that creation has ever had. Isn't that interesting? I don't need to denigrate the angels. I don't need to denigrate creation. I don't need to denigrate Moses or Abraham or Joshua. They were wonderful gifts. To the world. And yet they fade completely from the picture as you see the glory of Jesus. That's how unspeakably good that He is. The very best things we've ever known fade away in comparison to Jesus. So the author starts by, and I believe it's Paul, by the way, but I'll just call him the author. The author starts by promoting. Jesus over the prophets. Let's read this. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, or in Son, whom He hath appointed the heir of all things by whom also He made the world. 
Let me read that again. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Now, that's, that's one little study you should do. Just meditate for a little while on the glory of God speaking to creation through men. A man can come and say, here's what's going to happen next week. Or, here's what's going to happen 300 years from now. Or, here's who's going to be the king in 700 years. Let me tell you his name. And let me tell you how he is going to burn the idols, Josiah, and the prophets who are serving these idols, is going to ground them to dust and sprinkle them as ashes in the brook. This is going to happen in about 700 years. Here's his name. And then it happens just like he said it was going to happen. Who can predict the fall of... or the rise of Cyrus and the way that the Medes and Persians will conquer even to the point of speaking of the water leaving the trenches and them coming under uh, 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 coming through those empty trenches you can go on and on and on to think of the glory of God speaking of prophets foretelling foretelling what will occur in centuries and times to go. Can you imagine that? Or a prophet coming and telling you, this is exactly what God has said for you today. God is speaking to you. And God is saying this about your life and about your situation and about your nation and what you need to do to repent or turn or He's going to send this group to to, to come and to punish you. It's amazing. It's amazing to think that, that men could come with the Word of God and to predict and to foretell and to bring the Word of God to bear to the people. What a gift Isaiah was. What a gift Jeremiah was. What a gift Ezekiel was. And Hosea, think about Hosea's life and how Hosea was not only bringing the Word of God, but Hosea was also living out in this really, this, 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 living out in this real life way this greater picture of who of Israel's adultery and Hosea had to live it in his own life and his own family. What a man to do that. What courage, what obedience. What a blessing that God would speak to men. What a blessing that God would reveal Himself. You and I who need such wisdom, who are so lacking. We feign ourselves to be wise, but really we're fools. We need something greater than us to speak to us with authority. And God has done that from the very beginning through prophets and in sundry and divers ways. But here's what John said in John 1. He says, the Word of God became flesh. So God not only spoke from heaven, but God, God, God stepped down into earth. So that we know that we not, we, we, we not only have the voice of prophets, we have something far better than that, don't we? God has spoken. God has spoken fully. God has spoken finally in His Son. This is what Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 is saying to us. What it's saying is that God is holding nothing back from us. God is fully unveiling Himself. God is giving us everything of who He is as He gives us His Son. Isn't that amazing? Maybe we're too sure of ourselves. Maybe we're too sure of our own wisdom. Maybe we're not aware enough of our own folly, of our own foolishness. Friends, you have no light at all. I have no light at all. All light that any man has comes from God. All understanding comes from God. There is none that doeth good. There is none that seeketh God. There, we are all gone out of the way, Romans, 1 says, Romans 3 says. Romans 1 says, professing ourselves to be wise, we became fools. 
and our foolish heart was darkened. And into this darkness, this great light has appeared. And it's not just a flickering light, or as I was saying earlier, not as a firework show that just brightens for a moment and then goes away. You go, what, what, what did we just see? But this light has come and this light has remained. This light has fully descended from heaven and dwells among men. We can see God in all His glory. We can see God in all His wisdom. And He's fully revealed to us. God is holding nothing back from us. Do you deserve that? Of course not. But God, in His grace, has fully revealed Himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is this? This is His Son, whom He hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. The word world there is also ages. He's speaking not only of, the, of, of, of matter, but of all of time. He made all the universe. And, he, and the whole universe belongs to Him. That's what Colossians chapter 1 says. We mentioned it earlier. For it, it, it was all made of, by Him. And it was all made for Him. We normally think of an heir as someone who receives the benefits of their father when their father leaves, dies, goes away. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. God, he's just saying, God is just, what he's doing here is he is just shining, shining his heart towards the Son of God. He's wanting you to see Jesus as he sees Jesus. He says, I have given everything to Him. It all belongs to Him. I am pleased to turn the spotlight fully upon my Son. That's what God did with Jesus here, didn't He? Twice. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased at His baptism. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. So Christ is the receiver the inheritor of all things as a gift from the Father by merit of His worth as God and by merit of His mediatorial work where He comes to earth to do this great work and the Father says that it all belongs to you. You've gained it. You've won it. You've bought it. You've redeemed it. It all belongs to you. All of it. Every molecule in this earth belongs to God. To, to Jesus. Every circumstance belongs to Jesus. Every king belongs to Jesus. They are all under His authority. Every rebel belongs to Jesus. Every, and I don't mean in a saving way, I just mean under His authority. Every person in this room, you are not your own authority. He is the king over all. It's all his. Every epoch of history, every rise and fall of nations, all the host, the angelic host, all the powerful forces, wherever your mind can go, it all belongs to Jesus. This is how glorious that Jesus is. He made all things, he is the heir of all things. It continues on, you know, verse 3, well, this is the whole popcorn popping here, it just goes fast as can be, who being the brightness of His glory. I'm not going to get into a, a debate over the person and work of Christ this morning, but friends, you cannot truly dig into Scripture and not see the glory of Jesus. He is so much more than a creation. He is so much more than a mighty God. He is the almighty God Himself. He is the brightness of the glory of God. Now glory is an important word, isn't it? Glory is an important theme of all of history. Glory is the great struggle of history. It's the great battle of history. Who will have the glory? Romans 1 talks about that. The fall of mankind 
was because when they should have been thankful at seeing the true glory of the Creator, they did not, they were not thankful for that and instead craved it for themselves. And Romans 1 says, so as a result of not being thankful and not seeing and, and not appreciating the glory of God, instead man decided to exchange to change the glory, to exchange the glory of God for the glory of corruptible beasts and four-footed creatures and creeping things. That's animals and, 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 and snakes and man, two-footed beasts as well. They exchanged the glory of God. Think about this. And said what truly has the glory are things that move. Things that we can touch. Things that die. Things that get crippled. Things that perish. Things that are dependent. Things that will not last. This is where the glory really is. And the rest of history to this point has been a struggle over that very thing. Romans 1 says that what ultimately happened is that man decided, you know what, you know who should have the glory? Not the four-footed beast, but I should have the glory. It all belongs to me. I am the most important. I am the most excellent. I am the most praiseworthy. So life revolves around me. Isn't that something? Sounds pretty foolish in a sermon. It sounds pretty reasonable in day-to-day life. Right? So the struggle of history is a struggle for glory. And what Hebrews 1 is saying is that, the, is that the struggle is a fake struggle. It's never actually been a struggle. The struggle is only in your mind. The struggle is only in your actions. It's already been established for all kind. God sent His Son, and you have seen His Son, and He has the glory as the only begotten of the Father. He's full of grace and truth. We have seen the brightness of the glory. And it all is in Jesus. Oh, friend, please understand that. Please embrace that. It will make all the difference in your life. If you come to the place where you agree with God, and you are no longer battling with God to who will have the glory, when you come to a place where you go, God, to to you belongs the glory, to you belongs the honor, to you belongs the dominion, to you belongs the power, it's all yours. And praise God that He's not just left us. He could have just said, I have the glory. It's mine. But instead, He both said it and He has sent His glory, the brightness of His glory to the earth so we can see what the glory of God looks like. We can see it in Jesus. And we can love Him. We can embrace Him. We can follow Him. We can learn from Him. Who being the brightness of His glory, this is why... I struggle preaching Hebrews 1. We could say that forever, couldn't we? Let's move on. And the express image of his person. The word person there is, is, is the Greek word. I'll probably mispronounce this, but it's the, uh, we say the hypostatic union. It's the hypostasis. What that means is it's the foundation. So the, the foundation, the, the ingredients, the essence of what God is is deeply imprinted, fully imprinted, stamped, engraved in the person of Jesus Christ. The express, the exact imprint of His person. Now let me just stop there for a moment. It would be fun to go to Isaiah for a little while, wouldn't it? And go, what what does that mean? What does that mean that somebody says, that God says, Jesus is the exact imprint? Imprint of the Father. Does that mean that Jesus is sort of like the Father, but not quite? Well, here's what God would say about that. In Isaiah 40, for example. Who are you going to liken God to? Are you really going to try to liken God to something less than God? Don't you dare, Isaiah 40 says. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. That is my name. I love that. I said this last week. I'll say it again. That is my name and my glory will I not give to any other. To no other. God is, in fact, God's war against creation, against mankind, is that God is jealous for His glory. This truly is the battle of history. 
The battle of history was settled on the cross for those who are in Christ when God in His glory uh, 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 and Christ submitted Himself to the glory of God to receive our sins on His back and it was settled once and for all. We were wrong. He was right. The glory belongs to God and so He punished Christ in an infinite manner for our sins for seeking to steal His glory. And the battle will be fully settled in the last day, when all those who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have lifted up their arm against God, all those will forever and fully be thrown into the everlasting fires of destruction forever and forever and forever. God will receive His glory. So you think it's important to God? You bet it's important to God. So for God to say, this is the exact imprint of who I am, you better praise the name of Jesus. You better not seek to put Jesus on any lower plane at all than God. He is God. It's a mystery. So we bow before the mystery of the Trinity as opposed to seeking to rework it in some sort of a way that our minds can accept and receive. The express image of this person and upholding all things by the word of His power. We can stay there for a while, couldn't we? Just go chew on that. Jesus is right now in a present tense. Right now, He's upholding all things. Right now, your life is being upheld by Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting there right now and go, I hate my life. I don't like my life. I don't like the word my life is. I resent the fact that I have this and I have that and I have these parents and I have this situation and I'm too short and I'm too fat and I'm too this, too that. Let me tell you something. Jesus right now is upholding your life in the word of His power. Are you fearful this morning? Are you worried about what 2024 might bring? Are you worried about where our nation is heading and where the economy is heading and maybe where your health is heading and a thousand other things that you really rightly could worry about, just know this. Just know this. Jesus is the one. It's not you. If you're upholding all things, your life's going to fall apart. And you're called to obey. But praise Jehovah. There's a mightier one than you who's upholding all things and upholding your life. Let me tell you who He is. He's the exact, He's the express image of God. Let me tell you who He is. He is the brightness of the glory of God. Let me tell you who He is. He's the one who made all things. And He's the one whom all things are made for, including your life. He will not let you out of His hands. He will hold you fast. He will never, ever, ever let you go. And He's plenty powerful. Just look at the things that He's upholding. He's upholding planets, and He's upholding nations, and He's upholding molecules. He's upholding marriages. He's upholding griefs. He's upholding sorrows. He's upholding joys. He's upholding all things by the word of His power. The next verse says, when He had by Himself. I love that. When He had by Himself. This is why Jesus had to be made flesh. Because man could not do this. When he had by himself purged all sins. We're going to run past that pretty quick, but let me stop for a moment. If glory has been the great struggle, then guilt has been in the sidecar with glory. Okay? Because man knows. Romans 1 makes it clear. Man knows. You know. Have you ever, you ever kind of erupted in a self-glorious style? Maybe it your wife, or, and then like five minutes later, you're driving your car, you start feeling a little bit guilty. <laughs> like, man, why can't I get that other feeling back? That really felt good for a little bit. But then you start feeling guilty. You know why you feel guilty? Because you are. You're guilty of seeking all the glory. You're, you're guilty of living for yourself. And so guilt has been in, a, has been in the sidecar right beside the striving for self-glory throughout, his, throughout history. And think of all the ways, maybe think about the ways that you have, that you have sought to deal with your sins. 
To, to purge your sins has been the great quest of mankind as well. They've chosen all, we've chosen all sorts of different bizarre ways to do it. Sometimes we try to just pretend that, that, that the guilt doesn't exist. I remember reading a few years ago, I think it was about an 800-page uh, history of the Crusades. I remember one thing from that book. I really enjoyed reading it. I remember one thing from that book. It was, it was written by a secular author. And he talked about how that in the beginning of the Crusades, one of the great motivators of the guys who left all, many of them eventually became very impoverished, who left all to pursue these crusades was not just the glory of it, of a great conqueror. That was partly there. It was not riches. Most of them didn't get those. But the great motivator was the promise the Pope had made that there would be absolution from sins for those who would go to do this great crusade, this holy war for Christ. So the idea that my sins could be removed. My sins could be purged. Well, we use other things, don't we? We defend ourselves. We will destroy others to make ourselves look better. Absolutely destroy others. And a thousand other things. We'll decide that man can do this. And we'll create some kind of a system in which man has the ability to to remove his sinfulness. We'll say, we'll live really righteously. From this point forward, I will always obey God. Okay, okay, from this point forward. All right, how about now? Does it work, does it? We drive ourselves to despair eventually. We'll go, I'm going to just forget the whole thing and just drown my sorrows in, in delight. And that never works either. Jesus by Himself, purged our sins. That's who this gift is. And sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll look at that more when we look at Psalm 110. But just know this, that is the greatest coronation there's ever been. Whatever coronation that you've seen of, of queens or kings or and pomp and circumstance and expense, the greatest coronation that's ever been has been the coronation of Jesus Christ when He ascended back on high, having left earth, having accomplished His mission of redemption and pardon and victory over sin and hell and death and Satan and the grave fully and finally He was received. And just imagine all those who were there to greet Him and to praise Him and to witness His sitting down on the right hand of Majesty on high. The right hand of the Majesty is not some servant's place. The right hand of the Majesty is the place of highest honor. It's the greatest place. There is no higher place than the right hand. And so imagine the saints that had already gone before. They had by faith believed in the redemption that was coming, but they had not seen it. They had died in faith. Abraham and Gideon and Barak and all the ones of Hebrews chapter 11, Noah and They had all died in faith. But now on this glorious day, the Lord Jesus Christ ascends back into heaven. And they, with all the countless host of seraphims and cherubims and angels and heavenly creatures and those who have gone before, all together witness the Lord Jesus Christ in His physical self. He will ever be the God-man in His self. He sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high as the, as the crowned King who will reign over all of creation. He is the supreme one. He is the sovereign one. All under His authority. All under His rule. This is the gift that God gave to you. And so here's what the rest of the chapter says. The rest of the chapter says, take the best thing you can imagine. Take the thing, let's say, maybe the best thing. Take the thing that most blows your mind. How about angels? How about angels? Angels, he says, they're like like spirits or winds or or like flaming fire. He's talking about both the, the power of angels and the invisible realms that angels can inhabit. That's pretty cool, isn't it? 
to be able to inhabit invisible realms and then to pop out of them in human flesh, that's pretty amazing. And so some people think of Jesus like that. He's not exactly Jehovah, but he's almost like Jehovah in that he is a spirit and that he can move through dimensions and come back into the dimensions. And, and he's really strong. And he's really powerful. And he can even make worlds. Well, angels can't do that. But friends, Jesus, what God is saying here is do not think of Jesus like that. As wonderful as they are, as amazing, as, as mind-blowing as they are, that's really what it is. Think of something that will go, go, go farther than your mind can comprehend. Just know this, Jesus is far superior to angels. Angels have never heard the Father say, you're my son. Angels have never heard these words, let the angels of God worship him. Angels are servants. They're ministers to do the bidding of God. But who's doing the bidding? Who's making the commands? The Son is. Because the Son has heard this. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So how long will your sins be purged? As long as the Son is the ruler. How long will He be holding your life? As long as He is the ruler. How long will nations be under His authority? As long as He is the ruler. And the Son has heard this, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's a forever throne. And He says it's a righteous throne. You've loved righteousness. You hated iniquity. And then He says in the last part, He just says this, And just know this about Jesus. He is the Alpha and He's the Omega. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens with thy hands. They're going to perish. You were there at the beginning. And this whole creation, this whole universe is going to live out its existence. The universe has an expiration date. It's a long expiration date. It's a wonderful term of existence. It's a powerful term of existence. But it has an expiration date, but Jesus does not. He's the Alpha. He was there at the beginning. And He's the Omega. He's there at the end. And in the middle, Satan and his hosts sought to destroy this creation. But Jesus is the one who preserved it and kept it. And He ends it on His timetable. At His decree. And it's going to be, I love this part too, it's going to be in order. He's going he's gonna to take it like a vesture, like a garment, and fold it up and put it back in its place. Isn't that something? We think of it as going to be this apocalypse, and it is in, in some ways. The heavens, uh, the, the, uh, the earth melting with a fervent heat, but it's according to the order and the plan, every moment of that, to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Things are not out of control, brother and sister. Oh, they are, and humanly speaking, but there is one who's the Alpha, the Omega, and there's one who's going to take this universe and going to fold it up Put it back in its place, and then he alone will remain. He'll be just the same, it says. His years will not fail. Well, we need to close this pretty quickly, so let me just say a couple of things. This gift, again, this is what we're rejoicing in. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. This gift, this gift really did enter into history as a real human being who is truly God and truly man. He came born of a virgin. Why a virgin? We ask, what's a wonderful mystery, isn't it? It's one that goes beyond our grasp. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts as to why Jesus was born from a virgin. First of all, salvation must come from God. That's true because God declared it, and that's true apparently as well. Where in the world is man going to, bring, going to find salvation from? He's not. Salvation must come from God. Salvation has been a supernatural work of God that goes beyond our nature from the beginning to the end. And so Jesus comes as the God-man, born in flesh, but born of a virgin, because salvation must come from God. Secondly, why a virgin? I suppose God could have designed any means of bringing Jesus to earth. 
Okay. Formed you in heaven and sent him down. I don't, I don't know. But in his wisdom, and God is all wise, the virgin birth made possible the full uniting of deity and humanity. And that, brothers and sisters, is our great need. We needed what Jacob saw in a dream in Genesis 28. Jacob falls asleep, and he's sleeping, and he's dreaming, and he's dreaming of this ladder that goes all the way up into heaven. And angels are going down the ladder, and then they're ascending up the ladder, and the ladder reaches the earth, and the ladder reaches heaven. Wouldn't that be something for heaven and earth to be able to be connected and to meet so that blessings from heaven could come down? And wisdom and truth and righteousness could come down. And so that man could, could, could approach to heaven. Wouldn't that be something? Well, friends, there's more than just distance that's a problem. It's more than just dimensions that's a problem. The great problem is not the distance or the time or the dimensions. The great, the, the great problem, of course, is the offense. There's a bar. There's a lock on the door. There's a wall that stands between heaven and earth. Because of our sinfulness. But Jacob dreamed of a ladder. Now, in John chapter 1, in John 1, Nathaniel is like, there cannot be anything that's good of Nazareth. That place is nasty. And then Jesus comes up and says, Nathaniel, I saw you over there by the, by the wood. And Nathaniel's eyes pop open and he goes, Truly, this is the Son of God. He says, this is, this is the King of Israel. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, if you thought that was impressive, you're going to see something better. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see angels ascending up to heaven and descending, not on a ladder, but upon the Son of Man. So it had to be a man who could come to earth. Full humanity, an ordinary birth. Full deity, a divine conception. So joining the vir- so, so seeing the virgin birth is this joining of, of God, an ordinary man, but not just ordinary man. The Son of Man. A man... By the way, when you hear Son of, it's a Hebrew idiom. It means... It means um, it's, 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 it's like an, it's an adjective. So it describes the man... The, 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 the Son of... The, the, the word describes who He is. So Son of Man, He's man. He's a manly. He's also called the Son of God. That's why the Jews were so amazed when He claimed to be the Son of God. They knew He was claiming to be God. Son of Man and Son of God. Here's the third thing Scripture emphasizes in the virgin birth. Scripture says this. The virgin birth meant that Christ would have true humanity. Jesus, never forget this, He would have true humanity, but without inherited sin. That's a mystery to us. It's not that women are sinless and men are not, and figuring all that about, that's, 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 that's just gobbledygook. What it said, I said last week, is that, is that in a very real way, the natural Adamic line, that means everybody coming from Adam, was interrupted. Jesus came in a really different way than everyone else who had ever been born. And so Luke 135 says, that holy thing, he's sinless, he's holy, it's a holy thing. So Romans 8 verse 3 would say, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. Hebrews 4 would say he was tempted in all points yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. Hebrews 7.21 says he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. This is our high priest. Well, I would like to spend some more time telling you about why he was fully human and why he was fully God. But we've run out of time. Let me just, uh, let me just, let me just close this way. 
One more thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is this. As a man, why do you have to be a man? Jesus has fulfilled what our original design was. We were supposed to be able to rule over creation, right? Have dominion. If you're honest, you'll admit that's not how you feel every day. You're weak. You're inconsistent. You're flawed. You're sinful. You're forgetful. Sometimes you're just plain lazy. And Hebrews chapter 2 says, you know, this is man's design. To rule, to have dominion. It says, but we see not yet all things out of subjection. Then it says this, but we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels in sinful flesh, in flesh, raised to glory and honor. It goes on to say that he partook in our flesh, like us, in order that he might what destroy him. That had the power of death. That is the devil. What's he doing there? He's putting things in their place. He's bringing all things under subjection. And then it closes this way. It says, so that he is able to succor those who are tempted. That's good news. Jesus came and as a man, he has brought all things under his feet. And so he's able to help those who understand that's their purpose as well, but aren't quite there. Are you needy today to have dominion over your your sins, over your grievances? You betcha you are. Well, here's one who can help. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, the unspeakable gift. May we delight and worshiping and honor Him. Now, there's only one response to this. Remember, this whole thing came in the context of just some people helping some other people. In other words, such a gift demands giving. Romans 12 says that we would present our whole bodies as living sacrifices to Him, holy and acceptable, for that is our reasonable service. May God bless you as you think on the unspeakable gift that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you be prompted that as the song says, take my life, Lord, take it all. Take my feet, take my hands, take my thoughts, take my moments, take my days, take it all. You know, it would be a really, 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 think, let's be one more minute, be a really awful thing to hear of this unspeakable gift and even claim to have received this gift. And then do like some children do when they get, you know, when they didn't want go, eh, what else we got? And sometimes we live in a what else we got kind of a mentality, don't we? We have received all. May we freely, truly appreciate and then truly give all in return. May God bless you in my prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the unspeakable gift that is Christ. And may we, Lord, fully see him and fully embrace him, fully follow him. I pray in Jesus' name and amen.